Okay. We're at the bottom of 64. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else from its stem. All forms of spiritual disease for we have not only been we have for we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. That is a very big sentence there, right there. In dealing with resentment, we're going to give the instructions here for step four. We're going to give the instructions for step four. There's another conversation going on somewhere. If you could take it outside, I would appreciate it because I can't overcome you. If we could take that conversation outside, I would appreciate it because I can't overcome you. I don't have the energy. And we're going to do a four-column resentment inventory. We're going to do a four-column fear inventory, five-column sex inventory with a side assignment. First column in the resentment inventory. Who or what do you resent? Who or what do you resent? It's not always going to be a who. I had a resentment against the expression, blood is thicker than water. Anytime somebody said blood is thicker than water, I was immediately left out. I don't have brothers and sisters. I don't have aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents. I don't have any of that. Never did. So when people would say, remember, blood is thicker than water, I'm left out. Second column, what did they do to you in 19 words or less? Third column, what basic instinct or instincts are affected? Fourth column, what did you do, if anything, to bring this about, and what character defects were brought to the surface? I have a resentment against Fred. What did Fred do? He called me a pisher. And what basic instincts were affected? Social instinct. He did it in front of a girl I liked, so the sex instinct. And the security instinct, emotional security. What did I do, if anything, to brought this in mo- to bring this uh, about? Well, I called him a, fi- a pisher first. <laughs> and what character defects were brought to the surface? I was being selfish. He wasn't sticking to my script. I was being dishonest. The real thing was I had a resentment against him because I thought Mary liked him more than me. So I called him a pisher. So we have the sex instinct affected. But the, we have the, sex, but the defective character is fear. Fear I'm not going to get what I want. We have dishonesty. I was lying to myself. And we have security. So I have a resentment against Fred. He called me a pisher, column two. Nineteen words or less in column two. The reason is that's how Bill does the example. Column three, what basic instincts? Sex, social, and security. And then we have column four, what did I do? Well, I called him a pisher first. And then I'm dishonest because I, I did that. I'm selfish. He didn't stick to my script. <coughs> And I have a fear that he's going to get with Mary and I won't. Next resentment. Just to do two. I have a resentment against Len. Why? 
Len doesn't want to go where I want to go for dinner. So, I already ate there today. So, what's the uh, basic instinct? Well, there's security and social. Okay, there's no sex involved there at all. What, what did I do to bring it in motion? Nothing. I was an innocent bystander, and he just came along. What did I do to set this in motion? I want to go where I want to go. I'm being selfish. I'm being, you know, I'm being uh, dishonest because I know he doesn't like that, whatever it is. doesn't matter. But I'm being dishonest and selfish. Okay? So that's the inst- next. Now. Let's go back to the thing. In dealing with resentment, we set them on paper. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. We asked ourselves why we were angry, column two. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. We were sore. We were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. We... Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations which had been interfered with? We were usually as definite as this example. I don't have time to go through the examples. We're really pushing for time. We have one more hour today, and tomorrow I only have a very limited window. Tomorrow I think it's, what, 8.30 to 10, or what is it? 8 to 10, two hours? Okay. 8 to 9.30, an hour and a half, so okay. Let's go to the bottom of 65. We went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we, when we, were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. This is a warning. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. But with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found it is fatal. Why is a resentment fatal? Because it builds up. We seek out food to shut the door on that pain. We eat the food, trigger the allergy, pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again. And we repeat that cycle over and over again, the mind telling us that the food makes perfect sense while the body ensures that it does not. This is how food kills. This is how the resentments kill. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. With us to drink is to die. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. The grouch is someone who's always mad. The brainstorm is not used today like it was used then. Good Lord. It was not used today like it was used then. A brainstorm in those days was somebody who tempestuously but infrequently flies off the handle. A brainstorm is a person who flies off the handle with their anger. 
They they may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. We turned back to the list, for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. This was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. That is your sick man prayer. That is your sick man prayer. This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. We avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Now, this is your fourth column of your fourth step. Fourth column, fourth step, inventory on resentment. And that is, what did you do to bring this about and what character defects were brought to the surface? Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely turn, look for our own mistakes, sorry, not turn, look for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them, we placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. Now, I hear good sometimes, and I hear what some of you are saying. But I didn't do anything to cause this resentment. I know that statistically speaking, there are women in this room that were raped. I know that statistically speaking, there are women and men in this room that were molested. I know that there are, statistically speaking, people in this room that have had tremendous degrees of injustice done toward them. I know a little bit about that. I sat at the feet of the master, my dad. Did he bring that about? Did he bring about the murder and mayhem that affected him and his family? Absolutely not. Now, What did you do to bring about that rape? What did you do to bring about that molestation? What did you do to bring that about? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But you want to let it kill you? Now, on behalf of the human race, I'm sorry that these things happened to you. I'm truly, deeply sorry. But it's time to give it to God. It's time to put it down and let God carry it. It's time to... Let him have your life. We've been carrying these things around for decades. We've been carrying these things with us wherever we've gone. And it's not serving us at all. It's not serving us to any degree whatsoever. It's time to give it to God. 
and it's time to let him have his way in my life. He is better equipped to handle this than I. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he will be the final judge and jury of these people, not me. Not me. We don't have the wherewithal to carry this around anymore. Most of us have decades of our life that were lost to this illness. I remember distinctly going to meetings in Chicago and Skokie and Evanston with a woman, Shirley, and her daughter was 16 years old at this time, and she fell in love with Mr. Wrong. And uh, he came to their home when she broke up with him or tried to, and he blew her brains out. And this is in an area in where I live where crime isn't supposed The only crime that's supposed to happen in this area is maybe jaywalking, illegal parking, parking in front of a fire hydrant, something like that. That's a big crime in this area. It was front page news on every newspaper in Chicago and every TV station, every radio station. It was front page news. She left program for years. We didn't see her. She came in, her skin looked as white as this envelope. Her hair was as white as this envelope. And she came in several years later and she says, this son of a bitch took my daughter away from me and took years of my life spent with district attorneys and police and lawyers and courts and reporters. I'm not giving him one more second. I'm not going to give him one more second. It's time to give it to God. I'm sorry about what happened to you. It's time to stop carrying it around. 67. Notice that the word fear, bottom of 67, notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. We asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Here's your instruction for the fear inventory. First column, who or what do you fear? Second column, why do you fear it? 19 words or less. Third column, what basic instinct or instincts are affected? Fourth column, what did you do to set it in motion? And what defects of character were brought to the surface? Now, if there's a resentment in connection with this fear, it belongs not in the fear inventory. It belongs in the resentment inventory. That's where that belongs, in the resentment inventory. Okay, is that clear? <clears throat> Where in hell? Oh, self-reliance is good. Oh, 
when, perhaps there's a better way. We think so, for we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us we, and humbly rely on him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? One of the most beautiful metaphors in the book matching calamity with serenity. I love it. I just love it. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. Now, we're going to get into the point where there's the sex inventory. And some of the ways that we hurt each other the deepest is in this area of sex. What are some of the common manifestations that we do? Well, cheating is an obvious one. You know, cheating is an obvious one. But there's others that are not as overt. Let's say I'm in a committed relationship and my partner wants me to do something and I've been reticent to do it. That's a form of selfishness. That's a form of harm too. Or let's say I'm in a committed relationship with somebody and I keep coercing them to do something that they would really rather not do. That's a form of selfishness and harm also. But let me just give you my opinion. This is not always opinion. It's my opinion. God gave us the sex instinct so that we could, notice I didn't say would, I said could, world of difference there, reproduce ourselves and or we can use it for enjoyment. So we can use it for enjoyment and or we can use it to reproduce ourselves. Any other use of sex is going to come under the microscope. So, let's just say we're using sex for something other than what it was intended for. Let's just say, for example, that we're lonely and we want to have dinner and not pay for it. So we seduce somebody or we let somebody in on the fact that we'd like to have dinner with them, knowing full well that this is not going to be about enjoyment. This is not, this is not to reproduce myself or to enjoy. This is just something I'm doing so I can get a free dinner out of the situation. That is a harm done to another person. Let's just say, for example, that I have a boss at my company that has made it very clear to me that they are interested in me romantically. So I'm going to go out with that person and string them along, not because there is a reciprocal feeling, but because I want to take care of my security instinct, my job, and I'm going to falsely give them an impression that they have some sort of future with me when indeed they don't. Let's just say, for example that I'm in a committed relationship with, with so-and-so, and they break up with me, but her best friend is Mary. And I seduce Mary, and I have sex with Mary, not because I enjoy having sex with Mary, although it may be delightful, or because I have any interest in Mary, but because I know that this is a way of getting back with my girlfriend or my wife or what have you. Let's just say, for example that I am in a situation 
where I'm using sex for something other than what it was intended for. Now, again, this is my opinion, and it is not OA's opinion, and it is not AA's opinion. And I know that there are people out there that are polyamorous, and that's fine. I'm not judging that for me. I'm talking for me. I cannot be working the 12 steps while I'm breaking the Ten Commandments. It's just not congruent to my life. I have been on the other side of that conversation where somebody was breaking the Ten Commandments while they were working the steps, supposedly, and it was very hurtful. Now, with those things in mind, let's take a look at the sex inventory and the sexual ideal. Now about sex. Yay! Okay, many of us needed an overhauling there. But above all, we try to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a, bare necess- a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arp arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. Excuse me, we all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault, and what should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. First column of your sex inventory, who did you hurt? This will always be a who. Who did you hurt? Second column, 19 words or less. What did you do to them? Third column, what basic instinct or instincts are involved? Seldom will it be the sex instinct. Fourth column, what character defects were brought to the surface in the harm that you did? Fifth column, what should you have done instead? First column, who did you hurt? Second column, what did you do to them? Third column, what instinct or instincts are affected? Fourth column, what defects of character were brought to the surface? Fifth column, what should you have done instead? Now we're going to talk about the sexual ideal. The sexual ideal doesn't say, I want her to look just like this one, or I want her to look like that one, or I want her to have this size body part. It's not what we're talking about here at all. We're talking about an ideal that we learn through our mistakes. I got married with no dating history except for one person. I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years of age. I was the fattest kid in the school. What was I going to do? And I went on my first date when I was 35 years old. And the girl that I went on the date with and I had a relationship that spanned a year and a half. 
And at the end of a year and a half, she broke up with me. And then I met my future wife. I met my future wife. And there were problems right at the beginning, but she wasn't using the F word. The F word is friend. She wasn't using that word, thank God. And so she wanted to get married, so I married her. Oh, I learned a lot on the way. I learned that I was afraid of her, that I never really felt comfortable around her, that I didn't feel comfortable. I walked on eggshells for the entire relationship. When the relationship was starting out, there were problems that I should have addressed, but I refused to out of fear that she would leave me. Well, look at me now. I also became one of her children in the sense that she was the adult, she made all the decisions, and I was the child. I learned that in a healthy relationship, I must be an adult. If I'm going to act like a child, I do not belong in a romantic relationship with a woman above the age of about five, whatever. But I need to be an adult in the relationship. I also found out that because our relationship was asexual 90% of the time, that that is not something I would ever tolerate again. I'm not talking about having the last days of Caligula here, but what I'm talking about here is, is that at some point there has to be a time when she's real glad that I'm home from God knows where, whether it's work or whether it's working out or it's from out of town, one of these retreats or conventions. There has to be some action going somehow, or this isn't really a romantic relationship. This is just roommates, which is what I had in my marriage. But I learned that I have to communicate much better. I abdicated and let her make every decision so I could not be held accountable. I did not want to be held accountable. And so no matter what happened, if it was her decision to get the green car and I wanted to get the red car and we got the green car and the green car broke, that wasn't on me. I didn't suggest we get the green car. I wanted the red car. I've learned a lot. And I hope that honestly, in my next relationship, the one I'm in now, I can continue to be an adult and I can continue to act and communicate like an adult. And if I can't be myself around you, if I can't be who I am in a relaxed forum, then this is not a relationship. This is phony baloney bullshit and eventually it's going to implode. Because if, it, if I can't be myself, I have no business with you. I have to be able to be myself. And again, I'm not talking about the last days of Caligula here, but every once in a while you better be really glad to see me or I better be really glad to see you or what the heck is it that we're doing. Page 69, whatever our ideal turns out to be, right? We must be willing. Oh, in this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We suggested each relation to this test was it selfish or not. We asked God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. 
whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, we ask God for what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. God alone can judge our sex situation, counsel with other persons, Top of 70 is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Well, some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and on our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God... uh, take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we will have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. To sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal for guidance in each questionable situation for uh, situation for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We have begun to comprehend their futility and faith and their fatality. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision, step three, and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, step four, you have made a good beginning. That means don't run away when you do this. It's just a beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. Now, step five is much easier today than it was years ago. All we need is a person who's uninvolved and informed. Uninvolved and informed. In other words, I'm personal friends with Len. And Len is personal friends just for the sake of this with George. Would George be someone that I would come to for a fifth step? Absolutely not, because I'm going to be talking about somebody that he knows very well, and that means he's going to be an involved party. It is not okay. Now, my friend Christian over here, he doesn't know Len from the front door. And uh, Christian doesn't know my ex-wife, and he doesn't know my daughter, and he doesn't know my boss, and he doesn't know my whatever. He is totally isolated from these people, but he knows the big book. Would he be a good candidate to do my fifth step with? Yes. He's informed, and he is uninvolved, uninvolved and informed. So he would be a perfect person to do step five with. Now we're going to go to step Uh, we're going to go to the very bottom of 75. Returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we have done. We thank God from the bottom of our hearts that we know him better. Taking this book down from the shelf, 
our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. Carefully reading the first five proposals, we ask if we have omitted anything, for we are building an arch through which we will walk a free man at last. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement? put in the foundation we have tried to make have we tried to make mortar without sand so we're going to take that hour of quiet time we're going to review and then we're going to go right to step six if we can answer to our satisfaction top of 76 when we look we look at step six we have emphasized willingness as being indispensable are we now ready to let god remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable can he now take them all every one if we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. When ready, we say something like this. You want to say it with me? My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have completed step seven. Now we're going to talk about step eight is simply a list of people we have harmed. And we're going to make that list. And once again, that list is going to come from the fourth step. If you have somebody that tells you to burn your fourth step, make sure you make another copy of it before you do that. Because your eighth step and your ninth step is going to come off your fourth step. So you need a copy of it. Um, bottom line is you need to see the destructive forces of this illness, who you lied to, who you harmed, who you this, who you that. And it's very, very important, very important. Then you have your step nine. Now, we get the impression that Bill Wilson visited Dr. Bob and Dr. Bob got, got sober at once. That's not true. Bill Wilson visited Bob on Mother's Day, 1935. But Dr. Bob didn't get sober until this date, June the 10th, 1935. What happened in the interim? Well, Dr. Bob always went to the medical convention in Atlantic City. And he had tickets to go to the medical convention. And Ann Smith begged, Dr., begged Bill Wilson not to let him go. And he, she said, don't let him go, Bill, because every time he goes to this darn convention, he comes back drunk. And Bill Wilson said, Annie, God has either removed Bob's desire for liquor or he has not. And Dr. Bob went to the convention in June of 35 and came back. He was a proctologist. I'm glad he wasn't operating on my procto that morning. But he had an operation and he needed to do the operation because he needed the money. He really needed the money. And uh, he needed to do it from the standpoint of the patient as well. And he came home back to Ravenna, Ohio. He lived in Akron, but that's where his nurse lived. And the nurse calls up Ann Smith and says, guess who's at my house? And she says, it's Bob, and he's drunk as a skunk. And Bill Wilson and Ann Smith went out there to pick up Bob, and sh he was drunk. And they sobered him up. And then the next morning, he was supposed to do this operation. And Bill Wilson did something for Bob that a lot of AA sponsees wish their sponsors would do for them. He popped open a beer and he gave it to him to, to quiet his hands down so he could do the operation. And he took him to Akron City Hospital. I suggest you visit there. 
And uh, he waited outside. Their plan was when you're done with the operation, you'll come out and I'll take you home and put you to bed. Hours and hours go by, no Bob. Bob's not coming out. Bill goes in. Bob's gone. Bob or Bill figured that the uh, beer triggered the allergy in Bob and he's off to the races again. 11.45 p.m. on the night of June the 10th, 1935. Dr. Bob is coming down Ardmore Avenue in Akron, sober as, sober as anything. What had happened? What had changed? Bob was finally willing to make restitution to the people in Akron that he had hurt through his drinking. He was unwilling to make restitution before then because he feared that if everybody found out he was an alcoholic, then he would lose whatever little practice he still had left. He didn't realize that everybody in Akron already knew that he was an alcoholic, and the only one that didn't know was him. He went around making restitution and never found it necessary to drink a day in his life, and he died in November of of uh, 1950 with 15 years of sobriety. I was as cruel and cold to my mother as I could have been. I told you this morning, and I told you, yeah, I told you this morning, she was mentally ill. She had three distinct personalities, and I resented her for that. I went out of my way to be as cold and cruel to her as I could have been. She died in 1976. I came in here in 1979. I worked for years at trying to make peace with her, even though she was dead. And what eventually happened is I came to the conclusion that I did not choose her as a mother. And then something happened on December 14, 1994, at 4.27 p.m. at Sacred Heart Hospital in Eugene, Oregon. My daughter was born. It was a Wednesday. And she was born at 4.27 p.m. And my daughter came into the world under a lot of medical distress. We didn't know. They said, be prepared, blind, deaf, cerebral palsy, developmental delay, blind, everything. So she was born, and they were waiting in the other room to take her to the neonatal intensive care unit. And they dried her off, and the, um, the, the um, nurse said to me, it does not appear that baby is blind or deaf. It was wonderful to hear that. Her name is Janet. I can picture her now. 22 years ago, I can picture them now. And my daughter was orange. She had jaundice from head to foot. And she was as jaundice as jaundice could be. She looked like a tangerine. And they took her into the NICU. I took her into the NICU. And they said, do you want to walk her or you want us to do it? And they said, are you sure you're okay to do it? And I said, I'm all right. I'm fine. I'm good. And I left my wife. My wife was very sick in pregnancy. And I went with my daughter to the NICU. They put her in the isolette. And when they give infants medicine, they don't give it to them in the arm like they would you or I. They put it through the feet and the head. 
and she's got needles sticking in her head and needles sticking in the bottom of her feet, and she is not happy. She's not happy when things don't go her way now, but she wasn't happy that day. I promise you she wasn't happy. And then I just all of a sudden got it. It was like a truck fell on me. I understood how much I hurt my mother. I looked at this little baby that was mine. My heart was there in the, in the isolate. And I realized how much I hurt my mother. And for the very first time in my life, I stopped wondering about or stopped thinking that I didn't choose her and started understanding not what I lost out on by having a crazy mother, but what my mother lost out on by having this mental illness and a bastard for a son. I was not nice to her at all. And I started thinking about my mother in a very new and very different way from that moment until today. And I started thinking about how I could make amends to this dead woman who I treated so shabbily. And when I take care of my life, and when I come here and I do things that are consistent with recovery, I feel her with me. I did put in her obituary something I know would please her. I put in proud Chicagoan. If you're watching TV with my mother, you'll always know who's from Chicago and who's Jewish. She'll point it out to you within three seconds flat. She'll tell you who's Jewish and who's from Chicago. And their favorites were uh, George Goebbels, and he was from Chicago. You don't know who that is. You can Google him. Danny Thomas wasn't from Chicago, but he spent a lot of time in Chicago. She'll tell you that. But I put in her obituary, proud Chicagoan. And I love her, and I know that she forgives me, and I forgive her. I know now that we can have a good relationship, and it is only by working this step that I can have a relationship with her that is fruitful and wonderful. Now I want to talk to you about another, another amends that I had to make, and then we're almost done for today, and tomorrow we'll do 10, 11, and 12. When I was in relapse in the early 80s, I had what's called a hot tooth. A hot tooth is very simply a tooth where the nerve is dying. And you can't go to the regular dentist for the root canal. You have to go to an endodontist for the, I think it's an endodontist for the root canal. Yeah, that's what it is, endodontist. So the dentist sent me to this endodontist, which happened to be a block from where I went to high school, a block from, from Mather High School in Chicago. And, you know, when you go to the dentist or you go to the endodontist, you wait twice. You wait in the outer office, and then they bring you into the dental office, and you wait there. But his daughter was also the nurse, so she came in to give me the shots, to deaden me up for the, you know, the procedure. So she comes in, and she gives me the shot of Novocaine. And um, he comes in. Doesn't say hello, doesn't say nice to meet you. First thing out of his mouth is, my God, how much do you weigh? He says, what in the name of God do you eat? He says, seriously, what do you eat on a given day? He says, you've got to stop eating dessert. You've got to stop eating candy. You've got to stop eating all these various things. He says, you weigh over 500 pounds. He says, you know, my, my chair here is only designed for like 300 pounds, and you're over, how much do you weigh? He says, I'm not sure I should do this procedure on you because of how fat you are. 
He says, what if you have a heart attack in my chair? Well, finally, what? No, I didn't have a gun. If I would have, I might have. But um, as luck would have it, son of a bee, I broke his chair. Isn't that something? I broke his freaking chair. And now he's screaming at me. I mean, his face is right here. And now I've learned to just emotionally shut down. And um, he's screaming, and I can feel his breath up against me. And now my tooth is numb. I'm at his mercy. I can't exactly walk out the door. He's working on my tooth, and he is wild, yelling at his daughter never to take an appointment from me again, and yelling at me, and yelling. Oh, my God in heaven, it was just, it was just a nightmare. Finally leave his office, and my share of the bill was $62. I'm going back. You know, a long, and I had, good de- I had good dental insurance, but my share of the bill was $62. Well, I had written plenty of bad checks in my day. You know what this guy can kiss for $62. $62. He's getting $62 when pigs can fly. You know, when goldfish can play the trumpet, that's when I'll give him his money. A couple of years go by. I'm back in recovery. And I've got a list of people I've harmed. And my sponsor says, what about the doctor? And I say, it's a dentist. He goes, shut up. (laughs) And this is going on for a couple of weeks with the dentist. Doctor, dentist. He's a dentist. He's an endodontist. So finally, he's the last guy on the list. I've got to make amends to this guy or I'm going to eat again. So I went over to Liberty Federal Savings right across the street from his office. I had a bank account there, and I had, I withdrew a 50, a 10, and two ones, $62. I go across the street, and I don't see his name on the door, but I see his daughter in there. She was cute. I remembered her. So I go in there, and I talk to the daughter, and she says, wow, you really look good, and look how much weight you've lost, and blah, 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 blah. I said, well, thank you very much. And he's, she says, my father died a year ago. And uh, I said, oh, I'm very sorry. I said, well, here's the $62, and you know, I need to pay you. She says, oh, please. She says, I don't want your $62. I remember how he treated you. I'm not going to take your $62. I says, boy, you really need to take this $62. I says, you don't even know. So she took the $62, Whatever she did with it is her business. My tires did not touch the ground on the way home. That's how high I was. I had done the right thing. I had made restitution for the harm. I couldn't even eat dinner that night. I had no appetite. I was so high. I went to the meeting. I shared I cannot begin to tell you the magic of this program. There's no wonder, no wonder why the promises of this program, although there are promises all over this book, the promises of this program are on page 83 after the, third, after the ninth step. 
We're going to conclude the day with these promises, and we're going to pick up tomorrow. And I know what some of you are saying, but Millie, Millie just walked in, but I'm, I have to go. I have to, you know, do that. Okay. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. More tomorrow. At what time are we here? 8 a.m., seriously? Okay, that's fine. No, I just need to know. 8 a.m., that's fine. We've got to do an early breakfast. And we'll do 8 a.m.